Welcome to Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, welcome to Lost or Found. On today's show, we will be reflecting upon the narcissistic personality disorder, and it will certainly be an interesting show. What if you had a soul contract and you made a deal with yourself before you were born where your soul chooses to have a specific purpose and lessons to learn, which you agreed to fulfill to help you grow and obtain a higher state of awareness? It does sound like it could be something from a sci-fi movie, but it's an interesting thought. Our lives are so full of choices, but if the major events in our lives happen for a reason, maybe I don't know, would it feel less detrimental? If we coordinated the plan and we were involved in the planning of our current life before it begins, would it change how we approach it? Could it make it seem like it's something that's not meant to kill us, but actually to make us stronger? Could it mean a shorter period of woe is me and more, fuck it, this sucks real bad, but I can do this and I will do this? The thing is, we have free will and life is full of choices. We have the free will to create and to experience life as we choose. You can choose to let cancer kill you, or you can choose to fight it wholeheartedly. You can choose to fight for your life. You can choose rebirth. You can choose to address your addictions to overcome it in this lifetime, or keep on drinking and be dependent on drugs until your death. You can decide to drown in your financial stress and distress, or have the hope for a way out, and know that there is a way out. You can decide to let childhood neglect or childhood abuse continue to hurt you as an adult or work on how you can let it go and live your fullest life. You can choose to always be the asshole or live more compassionately and accept more love into your heart and give more love. Oprah Winfrey once said, consider the world, the earth, to be like a school and our life like the classrooms. I believe that whatever we do in life, we are meant to learn from it. I'm not just talking about the shitty things that happen in our lives, but even the lighter moments. Every book that we read, every movie that we see, every conversation with someone in the park. Obviously, there is a higher entertainment level in those things, but it's perhaps stuff to possibly think about. Like the analogy of a sci-fi movie and possibly this current topic, which may seem foreign to people. Whether or not you believe, I think it's interesting to ponder. Recently, I read a book called Messages from Above written by Monica the Medium, and she writes, Our soul contracts dictate those lessons we learn here in Earth School. When we are still in pure soul form before we are born, each of us signs up for our Earth School curriculum. We identify those areas in life that help us grow and evolve. You can think of these items as your soul's to-do list or the Earth School syllabus. We put this contract together with the help of our spirit guides and members of our soul family. Together, this spirit team figures out the lessons that are most important for you to learn during your upcoming lifetime. 
These lessons involve going through a certain set of experiences, the good, the bad, ugly, and everything in between. Our soul contract is not all rainbows and butterflies, because if it was, how could we hope to learn and evolve in any sort of significant way? For many of us, it is through our challenges that we grow the most. Sometimes I talk to people who are shocked to hear that at some point, they signed up to go through traumatic events. What? Who would do that? The answer is that potentially you would. This is not for the purpose of suffering or karmic punishment, but for the growth of your soul. Again, whatever pain or suffering you might temporarily experience here on earth is just a blink of an eye in the ultimate timeline of your soul. She also states, I find this piece of information especially helpful during those moments in life when things seem particularly hard or downright unfair. I remind myself that any challenges and suffering I go through are my own design and ultimately for my greatest good. It helps me look at difficult experiences from a completely different perspective than I would otherwise. Over the last decade, my relationship with my mother has become very difficult. And with the realization that our relationship is very difficult, complicated, and now strained, it started to make sense why things seemed so awkward growing up, or maybe why I did things growing up that I didn't imagine a normal kid or teenager doing. Growing up and into my early adulthood, I always felt as if I was walking on eggshells. But anyway, everyone has their own truth. There are periods when things seem okay, but there are long periods in her life where she fixates on her beliefs that I'm a drug addict. I'm not. Or that I'm a horrible mother and doctor. I'm not either. Or she goes through periods of harassment towards me and now my husband as well, where he will get multiple voicemails involving her pleading him to divorce me. And divorce is taboo in Korean culture, although it's happening more frequently. Basically, my point is, it has been very difficult. I went through stages or years of immense guilt and pain that perhaps I wasn't doing enough, as filial piety is very strong in the Asian culture. Then anger, feeling down, then trying to work on it again and reconstruction. And I've come to the realization that perhaps that's it. Since I'm not as angry towards my mother anymore, but it's still fragile, as when she calls me, it feels like I automatically have to have all of my guards up and pray that I don't react. I really come to wonder, perhaps if not from my mother, would I be who I am today? Even though my mother believes that she loves me with all her heart, her love for me has been conditional. She would treat me better if I did well, if I gave her something or pleased her. Unconditional love means to love someone without conditions. It means we love someone simply because they exist. But I really wonder, since her love has been so conditional, that it's helped me to recognize what an asshole I've been to myself for most of my life. I know it sounds ironic, but hear me out. Maybe if we are loved totally and completely, we wouldn't have a reason to find a way to love ourselves. The love would already be there from others and you wouldn't have to think there was a reason or need to find it within yourself because love has been so available in your life. Because her love has been conditional and it's taken me a lot to say this in a matter of fact way, it has caused me to look within somehow embark on my own spiritual journey of self-discovery and look for the source of love from inside of myself. And I've always been the biggest asshole to myself, but maybe if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have wondered about decency. Without her as my mother, 
I wouldn't have learned what boundaries were. And it is because of her, I now know to have clear boundaries so that she doesn't hurt me so much. And perhaps I wouldn't have started to profess and affirm every morning, I love and approve of myself. I love myself unconditionally. I wonder if one of my life's lessons is unconditional self-love because that's one of the only ways in which I can make sense of my relationship with my mother. Maybe if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have learned to respect myself and would have continued my path of secret self-deprecation. I think because of our complicated relationship, I've learned to trust my thoughts and developed the courage to wonder if our healthcare system is broken and wonder if there could be another way. Anyway, it definitely makes for some interesting sci-fi kind of thinking. But seriously, what if? And if there is such a thing as a soul contract, I've decided that when I'm on board to plan my next set of life lessons, I am going to ask for a break from my mother. That's my own personal joke, but jokes are oftentimes 50% true. So basically my point is, maybe what you are going through is not meant to kill you, but perhaps to make you stronger. And maybe it's meant for you to ride out, rough out the stormy waves, so that you can eventually see your rainbow that does exist out there. Today I will be speaking to my friend Josie Teresi again, who is an intuitive spiritual counselor, Reiki practitioner and healer, inspirational writer and ordained minister about narcissistic personality disorder. Welcome to the show today, Josie. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Michelle, for having me. It's an honor to be here on your podcast. Thank you so much. Today, we are going to talk about narcissistic personality disorder, but it's important to note that neither Josie nor I are specialists on this personality disorder. However, today we come from the perspectives of two people who've had experiences with people we believe to be in this category. And thank you, Josie, for coming today to discuss this. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm honored to be here, Michelle, to to uh, broadcast on this podcast, and hopefully we can reach out to people who have experienced um, narcissism narcissism in their relationships or in their parental status, and hopefully we can help people by reaching out. And I think it's important to maybe perhaps begin with defining um, narcissistic personality disorder. And according to the Mayo Clinic website, uh, they define narcissistic personality disorder as one of the several types of personality disorders. And it's a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their importance, deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and lack of empathy for others. But behind this mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to the slightest criticism. And other qualities include believing that they are superior and can only associate with equally special people and looking down on people they perceive as inferior, taking advantage of others to get what they want, being envious of others and believing others envy them, having trouble handling criticism, and they can become impatient and angry if they don't receive special treatment. They react with rage or contempt and try to belittle the other person to make themselves appear superior have difficulty regulating emotions or behavior. Do you agree with this, Josie? Yes, in my experience, uh, all of those points were brought out in, in the person's personality that I had a relationship with, yes. 
Absolutely. There's different levels of narcissism. As you pointed out, there, there's different degrees of it. I also believe that some people can be a little bit narcissistic, but there's cases where they're, they, don't have a bi- they don't have any business being in a relationship because you're not really in a relationship when, when you're with a narcissist. You're not really. It's an illusion. It's all an illusion. Well, I think if you really fall into that narcissistic personality disorder category, in terms of a relationship, it's kind of like a predator and prey sort of thing. Yes, I experienced that. And it's equally and maybe doubly frightening when you realize it. Because a person who treats another person like that is, that's not love. Then has nothing to do with love. I agree. And I think, you know, in terms of it, Being with a narcissistic partner, it's kind of like initially you fall in love with the illusion of this person before you realize the truth. But it it may take a long time to realize the truth. You hit on a really important note here because the way I feel about it, and I, I want people to hear, this is really coming from my heart when I say this, because it's difficult It's hard to let a narcissist go. Number one, when they're deep in their disease, they expect people to, they almost test you to see how much you'll take from them. And it becomes that biting dog, that snapping dog, kind of sick uh, relationship. So it's difficult to let go because the illusion they created, that it, it kind of feeds a hope of a person who is looking for love. It feeds them. So they actually think it's true. Well, what Dr. Christiane Northrup says is that narcissistic personality disorders, which she calls energy, a type of energy vampires, they feed on a certain type of personality. Yes. And that is that of the empath. Yes. Uh, they feed on people who will praise them. Uh, you know, kind people like to praise other people, especially when they love them. Uh, they feed off of that. But they're constantly hungry. They, they don't have the ability to get filled up when a person tries to support them. So you're really, you're really knocking on a brick wall when you're trying to love a narcissist. For one thing, they don't know what love is. Uh, in the deeper sense of the disease, they don't know what love is. Why do you think that is, Josie? Because um, all the research I've had, I've done, and the personal experience I've had, in a lot of cases, it's something that they, I don't think they're born with it. I think that their parents, something happened as a child, either they were abandoned, they did not feel love. So they grow up very angry and they don't want anybody else to feel love they didn't feel love so they don't want anybody else to feel love now they don't realize a lot of narcissistic people don't realize how much they're hurting people they don't care but in the research that i've done and experience they know very well that they're narcissistic it's not something they don't know they know it within themselves I believe that. And from what I could find, although the cause of narcissistic personality disorder isn't known, some researchers think that in biologically vulnerable children, parenting styles that are overprotective or neglectful may have an impact. 
It's either one or the other. And I read on that too, Michelle. Thank you for pointing that out. It's either one or the other. It's either that they're lacking in attention and love or they're being overly protected. In the case in the relationship that I had with him, uh, he had polio. He contracted polio when he was 18 months old. And his parents gave him such an askew picture of life because they, on one hand, they said, oh, it's, you're going to get over this. It's tough love and all that. And then they, on the other hand, oh, no, you can't do that. And then they overprotected him. So they gave him mixed messages. But they weren't educated at that time that that happened. That was in the 50s and 60s. They were not educated to cope with narcissism or to cope with the psychological effects that can come from having polio. But I wonder, Josie, if certain people can definitely be prone to it in terms of how that their family interactions work. Oh, absolutely. Yes. It's how they're raised. It's how they're either shown love or not shown love. Now, I don't want to, you know, we're not going to mention any names here, but there was a very infamous murder uh, in California, and he was considered the golden child. And he grew up a total narcissist, and he did commit murder. Now, that's not to say that all narcissistic people can are capable of committing murder. But when they're brought up not knowing love, they just brought up to not really have that empathy, not have that caring. So they glean towards empathetic people to make up for their loss, to for make up for, for that hole in their soul. And I think this is kind of what you point to, but, you know, Dr. Christiane Northrup in her book, Dodging um, Energy Vampires, mentions that the wounds we experience in childhood shape your entire life. And perhaps it's kind of like they were, their lives were, you know, as a child, they, they were molded into this. Yes, because as you said, the trauma at an early age caused neglect or excessive appraisal, and that can create a narcissistic personality. Perhaps to compensate in their lives then and, then and, and in the future, maybe. Well, yes, narcissistic people will glean towards empathy and, and honest and loving people and what they do is they know that they're not, they don't, they don't have those qualities with them themselves. And so they use that person. You know, I had mentioned before that it's generally known that narcissistic personality disorders like a certain personality type, the empath, highly, also known as highly sensitive people. So if I can like define what an empath is, according to Dr. Judith Orloff, empaths are highly sensitive uh, they are highly attuned to other people's emotions, good and bad. Uh, many are introverted and overwhelmed in crowds. Empaths are highly intuitive. They get emotionally overloaded and need alone time. Empaths can become overwhelmed in intimate relationships. They are often targets for energy vampires. And she states that a particularly dangerous energy vampire is the narcissist. Empaths are replenished in nature. 
They have highly tuned senses and empaths generally have huge hearts, but sometimes give too much, such as relieving the pain of others. And perhaps that's the reason why the narcissist really oftentimes it seems like they target the empath. Michelle, you hit it right on the nosy. <laughs> that is, you know, and what's interesting about all of it to me is narcissistic people are super, super sensitive. Their disease has made them that way. They're sensitive in a more negative way than an empath is sensitive in a more positive way. If you do anything to an excess, then it's going to turn, it's not going to turn out, you know, the balance and harmony if we're an empath, we still have to love ourselves. We have to protect ourselves. We have to be wise in that. And knowing yourself is the best way to get along with anybody else is knowing yourself first. I think it's true because I think if you have a very inflated sense of self, that's not real. It's just kind of like empty air, kind of like a balloon. It can very easily get popped. Any little thing can affect it, you know? Yes. So. It's like in, when you re, when you mentioned their sensitivity. Well, their sensitivity. Their sense. Yes, it's a it's to a fault because their sensitivity is. Don't criticize me. Don't you criticize? No, because I'm perfect. Don't you criticize me? And they're incapable of taking in, or it's really hard for them to take and to see their inner selves. Everything for a narcissist is manifested on the outside. So that's why it's such an illusion because they're not, they don't know themselves on the inside. I'm just going to give you one example of that if I can in my mm -hmm. personal experience. We had just moved in together and I wanted to invite my daughter and my granddaughter over for a barbecue. It was summer. And so I approached him and I said, yeah, we're going to have a barbecue. And he goes, oh, I'm not going to be here. There's no way. And I said, well, I'd like you to meet my daughter and my, my granddaughter. You know, they're my family. They're coming over. He goes, they're, they're coming over here. I don't want them over here. And I said, well, they are my, my family and I'm going to have them over. And he said, he said, well, I'm not going to be here. And he said, besides, you know, if they come over, I, I'm just going to have to act all nice and everything. And I said, well, why don't you just be yourself? And you know what he said? I don't know who I am. Very telling. I don't know who I am, so I can't be myself. Because they don't take anything on the inside. Everything is done on the outside. Very, They're very materialistic. And everything is, how good looking am I? How beautiful am I? And how black is my soul on the inside? It's kind of like the modern day Instagram photo, you know, like really good looking picture. They look awesome. And inside it could be like totally like fake in an empty tin can. Yeah, true. You know? um, but that's kind of hard to live with because I think like in life we strive for our insides to feel like the outside that we hope to portray. And when there's clearly an imbalance like that, I mean, it affects your whole life. Yes. My prayer every day is I ask Holy Spirit to beautify me on the inside as well as the outside. From the inside. You see people and, you know, maybe they're, they're not ravishing. 
but they have that charisma that comes from the inside of them. Unfortunately for a narcissist, that does not get developed because I feel like a broken record sometimes, but it all has to do with love and the lack of it. And a narcissistic person growing up, a narcissist being a narcissist all their lives, not really, and seeming not to be capable of love. They're blocked from that quality of loving another person because they don't love themselves. They, they don't know how to love themselves. And the way their actions are revealed, it's like almost as if they're afraid of what really love is to actually let it in. Yes, and fear versus love. You said it, they're afraid. And when we're afraid, that means that there's, that's just an empty spot we have that needs to be filled with love. And the sad part about narcissism is that an empath or somebody like myself or, or anybody can say, you know, that person's got some issues. They're depressed. They come across as depressed. They're this, they're that. I'm going to try to help them. But if a person doesn't feel that they need the help, you're just pounding against a brick wall. Yeah. And I think a narcissist is especially difficult because if a narcissist became a narcissist because they were neglected and they maybe overcompensated so that they don't feel hurt from the lack of love when they were younger, it's kind of like they built a concrete wall around their heart. And, and their soul. Yeah. And it's kind of like to actually let that love in. It's almost impossible if you build a concrete wall around your soul and your heart. That's what even Christine, uh, Dr. Christiane Northrup says. She believes that there's really, you know, for a majority of the narcissists, there's really no cure, that they don't change. You can't change them. <laughs> what she describes it is actually as a dead-end street. And, but what has to change is actually you. Well. Not well, the narcissist. You know? <laughs> um, well, I, I agree with her to a certain degree. I think it's very difficult to help a narcissist. The first fact is they don't think they need any help, so they're not going to go seek a counselor. The second is they'll schmooze the counselor. Um, I watched him schmooze our counselor. In 30 seconds, he had her. And he was an expert at it. And he did it all of his life. He could schmooze and say, oh, I'm perfect. I'm the, there's nothing wrong with me. And, you know, everything's cool and groovy. And that particular counselor, she fell for it. It's like they know how to put everything in place. Like a lot of narcissists typically tend to be very good looking. So you have a person at that, at that beginning, they're very good looking. They're good talkers. They know how to kind of manipulate the situation. Like I've never met a narcissist who does not manipulate. You believe their words. You believe that the, the illusion that they create, but the problem is it's an illusion, not yeah. the truth. And it, it can become an addiction. And also, isn't the truth about a narcissist, they're so manipulative, even though it's them, they make you believe that it's your fault. Oh, absolutely. Well, because they're perfect and they can't make any mistakes. But for one reason or another, they're masters at, and I don't quite understand fully the full impact of this, they want you to become addicted to them so you need them as much as they need you. 
Now, if you leave a narcissist before, before they're done with you, they'll come after you and they'll stalk you and they'll get you back until they're done with you. When they're, and you know, they're never really done because they're, they always want a supply. They need a supply to supply them. They think they do. See, the problem with narcissism is so, so vast, but they feel like everything revolves around them, that their whole universe is wrapped around themselves. But when you ask them if they love themselves, they'll say no. I mean, he did. He said, I hate myself. And I said, well, then how can you love me? Oh, I can love anybody. I can love. No. If you don't love yourself, you can't love anybody else. That's all there is to it. I think that's true. And I think oftentimes the narcissist projects how he or she actually feels about him or herself to their partner or the people around them. When they really have a partner who's close to them, you know, whatever negative things that they say to that person, I think it's really reflecting what they actually feel about themselves. That very well could be true. They're acting. They go on stage. It's an act. They're really afraid to get in touch with their own feelings because it's so dark in there. I really believe it's hard to change a narcissist, but what can really change is actually you and how you approach that narcissist. Especially, I mean, my mother. I mean, my mother was known to be very, very beautiful. Like I knew at a really, really young age that she thought she was beautiful. Everyone around her thought she was beautiful. But also at a really young age, at six or seven, I was a very, very sensitive child. I knew some of the qualities that she saw in me in terms of how fat I was. Oftentimes at like six or seven, she would like measure my arms. She would measure my arms with her pinky and her thumb finger and then compare it to herself. And I was like six or seven. And even to this day, I can't wear tank tops because even though I thought that was nothing then, it's still, I still carry a little bit of that. Or even knowing at six or seven that I had a mustache, as silly as that is, that I couldn't eat certain foods because she was afraid that my mustache would get worse. And these are really silly examples, but still, like, think about those things, you yeah, know? Yeah, the like, outside was all she really saw. She doesn't look on the inside, so she doesn't see you on the inside. And also, I think by making me feel a little bit worse about myself, that kind of creates the perfect prey. I need her. I mean, granted, I was young. I was a kid, you know. Mm -hmm. But when you kind of chisel at your victim a little bit and they feel worse about themselves and you belittle them, they need you more. That's how a narcissist copes with their own challenges. Instead of looking at and focusing on themselves... What they do is they, they focus on their prey and bring that person, try to bring that person down to their level. So misery loves company, doesn't it? They want you to be just as miserable as they are. And they're very jealous and envious of people who are loving, even though, even though they went after that person who was loving to be in that relationship. So there's the sickness, there's the disease. Dis-ease. I think, you know, it's kind of interesting when I think about it because in a way, like, our lives were very parallel. <laughs> you know, I thought I was mostly socially awkward, the reason why I didn't have friends, but 
she didn't have any friends, nor did I really have too many friends growing up. So like we had each other, but it wasn't necessarily the healthiest. Even very early on, I knew what looks were. And I, I feel horrible if like kids know what that is because she would give herself a certain rating out of 10 and she would give me a lesser rating. And I'm like, do you know when you're like little, you don't need to hear that those things when you're just learning who you are, you know? Yes. I'll, I'll be honest, Michelle, in my experience and everything, I think that when a parent, either one or the other parent, is narcissistic, uh, I think that's the one of the biggest challenges for children to cope with. But we come through our, our, our parents, but we aren't our parents. We come through. That was a path that you took to come through to this world. And I believe that even though some experts will say that it's impossible to heal narcissism through therapy, which I think is pretty accurate, I think it might be difficult, but I think in some lighter layers of narcissism, it can help. So in spite of the fact that a narcissist is difficult to counsel, I think the child of a narcissist, whether it's a mother or a father, that is the challenge as you're growing up when you discover when you and you may not even discover it maybe a counselor will but seeing a counselor and a therapist definitely would would help i sought a counselor for over three years after i was abused by a narcissist it took time and you have to be patient with yourself you know you're not going to become a narcissist and you can continue your life and be healed, but it does require healing. I actually didn't realize that my parent was a narcissist until I was actually in my 30s. I had gone into medical school. I learned about narcissistic personality disorder, but I actually never put two and two together. Sure. I just had no idea. But then there is a certain point where when after I left the nest, that things actually got so much worse. You know, I think two qualities that a narcissist have is that they're extremely manipulative. And the other thing that I had mentioned before is that they project onto you how they feel about themselves. But when they're like pro projecting onto you, you actually have no idea. You actually think it's you. Like once I got married, um, you know, and my mother had less control, she would tell me such ugly things about myself. Even though I knew my own truth and I was really like working hard to like kind of, I don't know, like live life, right? Go to work, try to get enough money for a house sort of thing. I would be driving home from work. And if she were, you know, she would go into these rages, absolute rages where I couldn't stop her. And then back then I would never, ever hang up the phone. Like I would take it. If she left me 10 four minute messages, you know, in one day, I was at a point in my life where I would listen to all of it. I didn't know that at the time I could set my own boundaries and erase them. But like I would be driving home from work and my mother is like yelling at me, like absolute rage that I'm a garbage doctor, that my family members, my husband, my kids will all eventually leave me like everyone left her. And, you know, now it kind of makes sense. But like... You know, or even the fact that, like, she has these delusions that I'm a drug addict. She still thinks I'm a drug addict. And, you know, even though you know it's false, they say it in such a way where I question my own truth. 
when she t keeps on telling me that I'm a drug addict and I know I'm not, you know, like I literally go back in my past as silly as it is, like evaluating where in my life could I have actually done something? You know, like I actually did that. And I was like thinking maybe in college, there was one time I took one puff of marijuana. Other than that, I questioned myself because as a child, you take in everything they say. Even with my setting boundaries for my mother, for my own health, for the sanctity of my own family. Because there was a point in time where before I had children, you know, my mother was causing, you know, marital problems for between my husband and I. I would have chosen my mother. That's the control she had over me. I would have chosen her. And before I learned what boundaries were, like I actually had no idea that this could be abuse or that, you know, what boundaries were. I went through like tremendous guilt and even grief over the reality of our relationship. I mean, I don't really like to talk about this too much, but this is the firm control that she had over my life. In medical school, there was one time when, you know, it was my fault, like I wasn't paying attention. And I was driving the family car to one of my rotations in the hospital. And then I was going five miles per hour and my foot wasn't totally on the brake. And then, you know, I was looking for my wallet, stupidly. And then I bumped into a Con Edison electric truck. So the whole front of my car caved in. Mm -hmm. So I like, I basically like killed the car. And then, you know, on the tow truck ride home, I remember telling the tow truck driver, I am so afraid. And I must have been 26. I am so afraid of what my mother is going to do to me. He thought I was joking, but I really wasn't joking, you know? So I go home and then, you know, instead of perhaps asking first, like, if I was okay, like, she starts, like, slapping me around. And, I mean, that's happened a lot in my past, but the thing is, like, I thought at the time, even as a 26-year-old in medical school, and I lived with her, that because, that I deserved it. You know, you have that mentality where you think you deserve it. Um... Yeah. What occurred uh, in my belief system, Michelle, what occurred with you between you and your mom is when you have a relationship, it doesn't matter if it's parental, romantic, friendship, sibling. When we're in a relationship, we are each other's mirror because she loathes herself so much. You became a mirror for her, and she and she had to cut you down. She had to try to destroy you because that's the way she copes with her own self-loathing. When you were a little girl, of course you were in denial. You didn't want to think your mommy was uh or you don't even know, you know, you know you, was sick or had you know, you don't know. You don't know because you were you were used to and uh, not used to it, but that was your life. You yeah, know? That, that was your was life. My life. Yeah. Yeah. What happened, and what happens with people is we we grow up, but we forget that we have an inner child inside of us that is still hurt. So I would recommend uh, anybody that has a narcissistic parent to really, really work on your inner child. And that is the first course of healing from that experience it takes time it takes patience takes counseling perhaps and it takes working on yourself and 
focusing on you and loving being that parent inside of yourself. It's true. I think I've learned in all of my relationships, the relationship that I've actually learned the most from is actually that complicated relationship with my parent. Because even though it was so complicated, I really feel like I wouldn't have wondered what self-love was without her. She was my path to self-love, actually. Like, even the idea of forming boundaries or setting boundaries, it was because of her and to protect myself. I never, ever protected myself before. That 26-year-old story that I shared, that will never happen to me again. That was the last straw when I realized something was really wrong. That will never, ever happen to me again. And it took a long time, you know, like... Even though I realized a bit of myself at that moment or after that moment, things became much worse before they got better. She really, really ramped it up in terms of how much disruption there could have been in my life. When we would fight or she would be really mad at me and she would go into her rages, it would last a while. But the lucky thing was that I lived in California and she's elsewhere. But sometimes these like uh, fights would last for three months where she wouldn't call me for three months. And the feeling that I had in those past three months, it was like absolute peace. And then I would feel guilty about it. <laughs> uh, did you feel liberated when he, she didn't call you? Yeah. I felt like a person again. I didn't have to please anyone. I didn't have to say the right things. I didn't have to inflate that, her ego, you know? Yes. And I'm glad we're talking about the difference between having a parent and dealing with it as a child and having a, an adult relationship. But that's one thing that's very, very similar is what you're speaking of. Now, in a relationship, I think it goes into phases. In a relationship, a narcissist falls apart when you stop seeing them as perfect. So you meet somebody, you fall in love, you know, you've got that honeymoon phase. It's three months to a year, and then they'll kick you off the pedestal. Now, it sounds like your mom, maybe the first year of your life, it was grandioso or whatever. And then she started seeing you as a real person. Once she started, well, they don't really see you as a real person. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like a commodity. You are owned by them. Yes. You know, it's, I don't well, know about partnerships, but definitely as a child and parent, you know, yes. for, between a narcissist. Now, I wanted to ask you, Michelle, are you an only child? No. And how many other children are there? I have a brother, you know, but he's definitely less sensitive than I was. For her, like, there's no one that can hurt me as much as she could. And she knew that. Yes. She knew that. So I was a little bit concerned going into this. But now we're discovering that there's probably more similarities between the two relationships than there are differences. It's really, I think, like a control thing. It's so much of a control. It's just, it, they have to be in control. But the truth may be that you may not need them as much as they actually need you. And, you know, in reality, we don't need them at all. Because they're not giving you anything, Michelle. It's not a it's not a fifty fifty proposition. It's not a give and take proposition. Every day I ask Spirit to bring me more love, but I put a tag on it. Both receiving and giving. 
give me that balance of love. What you don't find in a narcissistic relationship is that balance. Therefore, it's not real. It's an illusion. Now, what I would pose to a person who had a narcissistic parent or has a narcissistic parent is to have them realize that they chose that parent when they came in. There's no coincidences. Everything happens for a reason. And that was their way of learning how to be a wonderful, loving, benevolent, and successful person. If they can choose to learn from it. Yes, you know? if you choose to learn from it. And you... And recognize and it. And you have. Yeah. And you have. So you have to give yourself that credit. That's your first step of self-love and... It's actually your first step of becoming, well, being the wonderful person and the wonderful mother that I know you are. <laughs> and okay. I think, you know, like, you know, the wounds from childhood are still there, but it doesn't hurt as much because I control right now how much she can hurt me now. But, you know, when I talk, you know, with especially when it comes between a parent and a child, the truth is it's very hard to cut that off entirely, you know? Because you're almost born with this eternal bond. And some people are able to do it. As an empath, I've been able to control, you know, how much I, of myself I give to her. But it's still not a totally, like, done deal for me. You know, it's like that relationship still exists. I think with a partner, sometimes it's easy to say, that's it, no more. But with a parent, there's always, like, that underlying guilt sometimes. Oh, absolutely. You know? it, it, I believe it would probably be... More challenging and more difficult, but not impossible. Yeah. Not However, impossible. With the way I approach her now, or even like I've mentioned it many times before, but boundaries. I just wrote the word boundaries yeah. down on my piece of paper. She can't hurt me like that anymore because I'm protecting myself. Like my biggest lesson from my relationship with her has been self-love. I had no idea what that was until I was in my mid-30s. That's young, Michelle. There's people that go a whole lifetime and don't know how to love themselves. But because the wounds are still there, like, you know, even when we talk sometimes on the phone and she could be like, I don't know, like yelling at me for the money that she owes me, but I've never asked for the money. Like, you know, it's like, that's how it is. I don't understand why there's yelling, but I still react because the wounds are still there, but I don't react as much as I did. Like if she's leaving me 10 four-minute messages in one day, now I just delete them. There was a point in time where I used to listen to all of them. Now I just delete them. You can control that. Absolutely, you can. Absolutely. you. And you said it. You have to set boundaries. And sometimes we have to set boundaries upon people and relatives that aren't narcissists. We just have to set boundaries. But especially in a narcissistic a situation, this is some of the difference between the parent and the relationship. It was suggested to me to cut off all contact with this person. So I did. And it was a, one of the hardest things I had to do because he had me believing that he was depressed, that he needed help. And he probably was, but he wasn't going to help himself. Yeah. They can go in and out of depression. They're so unattached to their feelings that they really they don't get depressed they get angry 
but they really don't get depressed. They say that they're depressed as part of the thing that helps them to get an empath to feel sorry or for feel compassionate. I remember one day he came over out of the blue and came over, sat down, and and he said he he said I'm really mad at you because you were supposed to fix me, and you haven't fixed me. And I just looked at him and I said, nobody can fix you but yourself. And as a child, I don't think you know that. You know, no. like as a child, I used to wonder what did I do to create that? Oh, I what know. did I do to not be able to help her? But yes, that's the truth I had to realize. Yes, there is no one who can fix that person except for that person. You have to want it. You have to recognize it. Like, I couldn't fix her. I thought I could help her, but really, you can't. No. That's part of the big picture. Narcissism, I believe, in our society. Now, I haven't done the research about other parts of the world. I'm sure that there's a narcissistic problem. In the United States, it is a epidemic. It's been brought out more because... The universe wants us to see what the effects are of children and people not being loved when they needed the love the most. We need love. It feeds us. We need it. When we don't have love as a child, we become sick. We either become physically ill or we become emotionally or mentally ill. Why is that happening, Josie? Because if you think about our world, it's a much more comfortable time. There's no wars. Why are these children feeling perhaps less loved? Um, because they are less loved. <laughs> it kind of grows like that, Michelle. Their parents did something to either neglect them or it can go down into the generations if people don't learn from their mistakes. So it's like kind of like almost like a time of reflection in a way. Yes, it is a time, it has to be a time of reflection. We're going towards more of a loving world, believe it or not. Sometimes when negative things rear their head, like the riots, for instance, the pandemic that we're in right now, that's all things that are on the darker side that are rearing their head. We have to look at those things before we can change how we feel about loving each other, being unified with one another. This particular subject of narcissism is just one of the ways that our society is showing its angst by not bringing love and bringing fear into our lives instead of love. Because narcissistic people are incredibly scared. They're frightened of everything. Well, if you look at our culture today, like, I think not as many people talk on the phone or, you know, and especially now we're not really like many of us are not hanging out with each other because of the pandemic. But I think some people text more instead of actually going and connecting with someone. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that may all play a part or you know, videos or something like that. I think it really can't replace human interaction. Yes, and, and that's rearing, kind of rearing his head, its head to that fact that we're internet-focused, we're media-focused, we don't sit down and write an old-fashioned letter anymore. Or the image of looking perfect. I think that's a very hard thing to live up to. 
the image of looking perfect because a lot of times they aren't perfect. But a lot of people who look at that think that they are this image of being perfect. When yes, and, that, when- and that's keeping, that's narcissistic because it's keeping everything on the outside. And everything that's happening to us, the surge of narcissism, the pandemic, the rioting, the racism that we're having to deal with in in our country and the world, mostly in our country right now, those are signs that say we need to love each other more. We need to unify and come together and listen to each other more. I'm going to talk about Weston Smith a little bit. He has passed away. He is a scholar and he is a teacher. He was at several universities teaching about religion and spirituality. He was asked by Bill Moyer, who was interviewing him, Weston Smith, Dr. Smith, what do you think of people who are atheists or don't believe in any kind of spirituality or religion? And he says, you know, I give them a lot of credit for going through this life without having anything to support them. But he says, my advice would be to listen to them, to listen. We need to listen to each other more. I think that's part of what's happening right now is um, we're coming from all walks of life through media and everything else. And we need to, we have different opinions. This is a this is a year of election. We have different sides, but it's very important for us to come together and listen to one another, even if the conversation is uncomfortable. Because what it does is it opens everybody up to everybody else's feelings on it, and we all are heard. So a Weston Smith, I recommend anything he's ever put out. He's a wonderful philosopher. And I absolutely agree. Like, how can we have hope for humanity if we don't recognize the things that have been hurting us? How do we not talk about it to attain the hope of humanity? We have to talk about it. Yes. The, the ugly things that still exist in our society. Oh, yes. I, and I think we hit on some things on narcissism. And I hope that our listeners will... It will help them and assist them if they do have a narcissistic relationship, that it's not over for them. It's not too late. It's never too late to get counseling. It's never too late to be helped. Once you accept the fact that you've been dealing with some a person who is totally delusional, totally in illusion, it's not real, you ask the universe to reveal the truth to you. And once you accept that, then that's when you can start healing. And I think, you know, even if your partner or your parent was a balloon that can pop easily, I think we can all learn from that. It's self-empowering to learn from that and to say the word no. Any point in our lives, we can say no to it. And perhaps I'm a testament to that. I'm still working it out. But we can all empower ourselves and be better and take care of ourselves. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we really haven't talked about forgiveness, but I think we have without saying the word. But even if you have been uh, abused by a narcissistic person, whether that person's your parent or whether it's a relationship or a sibling, 
We can forgive. And the first person we need to forgive is ourselves for being in the relationship. I went through that. It's like, I'm such an idiot. Why, you know, I couldn't, I woke up one morning and I realized that everything was an illusion. I had five years of an illusion. And it took me some months to forgive myself for that. But I did. And I have forgiven the narcissist. And perhaps a mistake no longer becomes a mistake if you learn from it. If you can attain truth from it, then that wasn't a mistake. That was a lesson for that was you, a lesson. for all of us. There's you know? a difference between making a mistake and learning a lesson. And I learned a huge lesson. And most of my lesson was due, and just like you, Michelle, it was self-love. Because I asked, it was a brave thing for me to do, and I pat myself on the back for the bravery. But one day I asked myself, when you hooked up with that person, when you, when you committed to that person, Josie, how much did you love yourself? You couldn't have loved yourself very much because you're mirroring a narcissist who doesn't love anybody who doesn't love themselves. So we have to take accountability and responsibility for the things that happen to us. And that's the only way we can really learn our lessons. And they're beautiful lessons to learn. And you, you hit on it, Michelle. Once we learn that big lesson, we don't have to do it again. We don't have to go back there again. And isn't the truth, love doesn't, shouldn't hurt like that. If it's really it's love, love. It's not love. Love doesn't hurt. Yeah, it has nothing to do with love. Yeah, if love hurts you, something may be off. Well, if love, if love hurts to that, to the abuse, I mean, sure, you know, we have lovers' spats or mom and dads have an argument with their daughter or their son. That's kind of different. It's really, it's really different. But when you're abused like that, yeah. um, if it's a continued it nothing, process, it has nothing to do with love and everything to do with fear. It's in the fear category on their part. I agree. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Josie. Again, it was a really fun conversation. And oh, thank it you. was. A, it was, and I think it's an important one, and I think it's one that I would love to explore further with you, Michelle, at some point. I think we can continue this conversation. <laughs> I think that would be fun. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found. Follow us, Lost or Found podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends.